Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Wednesday, September 20th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This is a special series of podcasts, 2007 Congress Keynotes Up Close, in which we will interview the keynote speakers presenting during the 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, February 17th through the 21st, 2006. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Darren Hyland, MD, MSc, one of seven prominent keynote speakers to present during the Congress. He's with us today to share some of his highlights from his upcoming presentation, Pharmaconutrition, a New Emerging Paradigm, and to give us some insight into his background and accomplishments in the field of critical care medicine. Dr. Hyland is a professor of medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and his hospital is Kingston General Hospital, also in uh, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. And he wears multiple hats, as far as I can tell, including the director of the Division of General Internal Medicine, as well as the research director for an entity known as CareNet, Canadian Researchers End of Life Network. And we're very grateful to have him here with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Hyland. You're welcome, Rich. Um, uh, I, as we were discussing before, there are sort of lots of interesting areas that I would like to talk to you about, but maybe we'd uh, give you an opportunity to begin by sharing with the members of SCCM uh, your two major areas of interest, I guess, nutrition in the ICU and some of the end-of-life issues, and perhaps sharing with us a little bit of background about how you ended up uh, in those two areas. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess during my formative years, I was exposed to uh, very sick patients, and it, I got interested in the care of the critically ill and did a fellowship uh, in critical illness. Um, and whilst doing that at McMaster University, I pursued further training in clinical methodology, research methodology, clinical epidemiology. And so it gave me the skill set to look critically at uh, existing research and understand what is known and uh, ask questions about what is unknown. And I began to explore that in the context of nutrition and gastrointestinal structure and function and outcomes in critically ill patients. And that led to our research program in nutrition where we have tried to comprehensively uh, review and uh, synthesize known information in the form of clinical practice guidelines. And in synthesizing that information, it's also highlighted, oh, here's a couple of things that are critical questions that need to be answered, and so we develop our research program. So I'm excited about exploring how nutrition or how nutrients might make a positive outcome in critical illness. But I also acknowledge at the same time that, unfortunately, many of our critically ill patients uh, don't recover from their critical illness, and 15 to 20% of our patients will 
will die. And so we've been very interested in end-of-life care in the ICU context as well. So on one hand, we're looking at strategies to improve their outcomes. On the other hand, we're acknowledging that not all will recover. And so our research program encompasses strategies to both define what is good care in the ICU, measure it, and try and do things to try and improve it. And so that's why I'm also involved in end-of-life research. So one of the areas that I'm, I'm personally very interested in and excited to have an opportunity to speak with you about is maybe if you could take a couple minutes just to clarify one of the what can often be a very confusing area in critical care, and I know it's one of your areas of interest, is this concept of the difference between immune-enhancing diets, where I know from your some of your recent uh, review articles, the data is not necessarily particularly positive on them uh, helping outcomes, versus some of the recent data looking at immunomodulating diets uh, for patients with sepsis and ARDS, this icosapentaenoic acid and gamma-linolenic acid that does appear to have some efficacy. And I was wondering if you could uh, maybe clarify some of the, even the broad issues for the uh, sort of the average intensivist. Sure. I think there's a bit of history here because initially uh, it was noted that some substrates or nutrients were noted to improve immunological function in animal studies or in laboratory uh, studies. And so they were combined together in marketable nutritional products and had the label of immunonutrition or immune-enhancing diets. And the concept there was that we would enhance the immune system, reduce infectious complications, and therefore improve the outcomes of patients who are at risk of such, such things happening to them. So that's the immunonutrition, immune-enhancing diet construct. And unfortunately, it was applied to a broad range of patient populations, from the elective surgical patient population, who truly does have incompetencies to their immune system and therefore would benefit from immune enhancement or immunostimulation. And clearly, these diets have been shown to be beneficial in in reducing infectious complications in that population. But one of our key points is that the treatment effect of these nutrients or of these specialized diets cannot be generalized to the critically ill patient because what's happening in a very complex way to their immune system is very different than that which happens to the elective surgical patient population. And therefore, what we observe in critically ill patients is that these diets, some of them, are actually associated with harm. Uh, For example, if I give an arginine-enriched diet to an elective surgical patient population that improves lymphocyte function, reduces infectious complications, but if I give the same diet to a severely critically ill septic patient, uh, that may exacerbate nitric oxide production, having deleterious effects on cells, on hemodynamics, and there are three separate studies now that have showed that these diets are associated with excess mortality in septic patients or patients with severe infection. On average, these immune-enhancing diets don't have a treatment effect. There is no benefit to them. And so people start to step back and say, well, geez, maybe, maybe you know, throwing all these immune-enhancing nutrients into a product and calling it immunotrition might not be the right way to go, might not be the best paradigm to follow. And so now we're sort of stepping back a little bit and saying, well, there must be Uh, specific nutrients that play a key role in modulating that inflammatory response in critically ill patients. Let's test those specific nutrients, or let's just add a single set of nutrients into these products 
and evaluate them in critically ill patients who are hyperinflamed and who have immune dysregulation. And so we're observing that, you know, now with fish oils, there tends to be a, uh, you know, a consistent body of literature that's showing that that is modulating, modifying, or attenuating that inflammatory response, and that's associated with, you know, a better outcome in critical illness. My own work has focused on evaluating the impact of glutamine and antioxidants, independent, not, not together, and evaluating whether they as single substrates are associated with a treatment effect in critically ill patients. And so this is sort of a, a classic uh, critical care uh, conundrum, right, where the concept would be sepsis being this uh, overwhelming inflammatory response, and perhaps if it could be turned down without being turned off, that might help the patients, right? That's right, exactly. And so we're, we're modulating the cytokine expression to try and attenuate that inflammatory response and at the same time supporting cellular immunocompetence so subsequently that patient may still recover and you know, be able to overcome subsequent infectious complications. But this can often be, uh, and I was trying to um, put a little bit of a structure on this before we had the interview, because this can be complex in many ways, right? One is the issue of early enteral nutrition in sepsis versus A, nothing, or B, versus uh, total parenteral nutrition. And then the second issue that I was going to ask you is that these positive results, recent positive results with some of these immunomodulating diets, that is not, uh, it's not flying in the face of the negative results from the immune-enhancing diets, if that makes sense. Is, is that right? We, we're trying to move past those negative results from the immune-enhancing diets and create a new paradigm that allows us to talk about the individual nutrients, what is their effect on critically ill patients, recognizing that not all critically ill patients are the same. So the severely septic patient might be systematically different than the patient with, say, subarachnoid hemorrhage who's comatose, intubated, lying on a ventilator, and at risk for infection. So we need to start to be more precise about what nutrient in what population at what time course is beneficial. And as I said earlier, this is systematically different than the way we talk about in immunonutrition where we put a lot of different nutrients into a product and administered it to a heterogeneous group of patients. Um, do, do you want to talk about parental nutrition for a bit? To, yeah, that would be great. That was one of your questions. Yes. So most of these, there's been a lot of interest in uh, glucose control, hyperglycemia, and its associated outcomes. And we know that 90% of critically ill patients are insulin resistant and do not handle glucose. Therefore, glucose could be toxic to cells, increasing oxidative stress, the inflammatory response, and perpetuating multi-organ dysfunction. We know that by intensive insulin therapy, we can try and mitigate that response. But the preferred treatment approach would still to be avoid hyperglycemia. So our synthesis of the literature would suggest that parenteral nutrition is actually associated with harm in critically ill patients, maybe only because it creates hyperglycemia. And now that we're more attuned to that, we can, in cases where it's necessary to administer parenteral nutrition, if we control the blood sugar, that may be okay. But in the early stages of sepsis, when they're uh, insulin resistant, there really is no rationale for providing such glucose or caloric loading, what these patients need to modulate their inflammatory response are either specific nutrients administered parenterally, like antioxidants or fish oils, or enterally we need to provide the nutrition or the nutrients that will support gastrointestinal structure and function and, again, modulate that inflammatory response. But 
simply providing parenteral calories uh, and protein like standard TPN um, doesn't modulate that response. It's a supportive therapy to minimize erosion of lean body mass, which will become an issue over time and prevent the effects of malnutrition. But those aren't modulatory responses. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, no, um, I was thinking while you were talking, there were sort of two questions that I had about that. I was wondering if you might, just for the listeners, reemphasize your opinion on just this concept of early nutrition in sepsis and how does that interface with some of this new important data combining that with immunomodulating uh, data? Maybe, you know, the concept of trophic feeding or feeding the enterocytes, your opinion on that. Okay. So um, when we talk about early nutrition support, I really want to discriminate from parenteral from enteral because uh, there's an overwhelming amount of supportive basic and clinical literature that it's early enteral nutrition that makes the difference in critical illness. And in fact, it might not be so much nutrition as nutrients. So for example, the hypotensive patient in whom you're leery about giving enteral nutrition, it may be that providing enteral glutamine as a fuel for those enterocytes and as an antioxidant will have a, a favorable effect on allowing uh, on minimizing the amount of inflammation and oxygen-free radicals that are generated in the gastrointestinal tract. And so we're actually really excited about providing early enteral nutrition and early enteral nutrients to try and mitigate the stress or modulate the inflammatory response. But providing there is no rationale for providing early parenteral nutrition. Uh, having said that, there are parenteral nutrients, parenteral selenium, parenteral glutamine, parenteral fish oils that... Um, some of which have been shown to be useful, but I think in the next five years we'll see an explosion of research documenting the positive effects of parenteral nutrients as well. And is the concept there, uh, again, another question I was thinking of is, like you said, perhaps uh, total parenteral nutrition isn't working because the content isn't right, right. and perhaps some of the results of immune-modulating uh, enteral feeding might be able to be translated into the, into the total parenteral nutrition literature? Is that, is that sort of the idea? That's a really good point because the content isn't right with historical parenteral nutrition solutions. We've got the wrong lipids, so if we move towards more of an omega-3 enriched fish oil that might uh, mitigate or modulate that inflammatory response, then the role for parenteral nutrition might change. Uh, it's pr standard parenteral nutrition is glutamine deficient. There's overwhelming literature that glutamine supplemented parenteral nutrition is associated with a reduction in mortality in critically ill patients. So if and when you are prescribing uh, parenteral nutrition, we recommend that you give it with glutamine as well. So th those are just sort of illustrations to suggest that the way we used to administer parenteral nutrition is, you know, wasn't working. Uh, so it doesn't rule out in the future that uh, a reformatted or redesigned parenteral nutrition may have a role in uh, in the early phase of critical illness. But I would submit that it would be more likely to be parenteral nutrients given in the early phase of criticalness that would modulate that inflammatory response that will have a positive treatment effect than just giving parenteral nutrition, even if it's, um, you know, redesigned. So I'm suggesting that the nutrients may have more of a positive effect than macro calories and giving calories and protein.
And and how does an expert like yourself decide when uh, some of these interesting, important, recent positive results with immunomodulating uh, the IPA-GLAD diet seem to be positive? H- how does that start to become a standard of care? For example, is that something that you are studying in your institution now, or you're just adopting it, that you think this may be a reasonable early uh, way to help improve septic patients? I mean, it seems to be cost-effective, certainly compared with some other uh, interventions that have made their way into the standard uh, sepsis uh, uh, armamentaria. Yeah. So we've been very thoughtful about this process of how do research findings translate into standards of care or clinical practice recommendations. And uh, going back to 2001 in Canada, we formed a committee, a multidisciplinary committee, to systematically re- review and appraise the evidence and develop clinical practice guidelines. So we published our clinical practice guidelines in 2003 in the Journal of Parenteral Interim Nutrition, and we, on an annual and sometimes semi-annual basis, will review the literature and update those guidelines, and they are currently available for all to see on, uh, on our website, www.criticalcarenutrition.com. And, and so it's that committee's role to, to synthesize the evidence and to consider a number of other values, typical of biomedical practice guidelines. We look at evidence and we look at feasibility, cost, safety, sort of other values, and we generate practice recommendations. So a committee, which I do chair, is, is, is in an ongoing way evaluating that and generating the practice guidelines. There's article that was published in Critical Care Medicine in September with this concept of the IPA-GLAD diet oh, oh, with yes, significant okay. positive results. I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on taking those positive results sure. of a randomized clinical trial. So there are three randomized trials now of XIPA, which is in, enhanced with these fish oils and borage oils and antioxidants that have shown a positive treatment effect. In fact, when you aggregate across these three studies, there is a significant improvement in survival associated with these diets as well as some of the more intermediate endpoints that you might expect, improvement in oxygenation, lung compliance, ventilator-free days, uh, duration in ICU. So this is pretty pretty convincing evidence that these uh, dietary manipulations are having a uh, positive treatment effect in critically ill patients. One of the confounders around interpreting these studies is that the control feed was a high-fat formulation so that if you postulate that the nature or type of lipid that you're using may have a positive or negative effect, it doesn't make a lot of sense to give a potentially harmful feed as your control feed, uh, high in omega-6 fatty acids, and then a potentially beneficial feed as your, as your experimental formulation. There really is no sort of control feed that we would normally give a critically ill patient. So that just is, uh, makes the interpretation a little more difficult. Our guidelines committee is actually meeting in early October just to review this evidence and uh, put forward a clinical recommendation. But I think it's going to be hard to ignore the consistent treatment effect we observe across three studies in these, uh, with these formulations that are enriched with these products. So it's, it's exciting that you know, we're, we're getting this evidence that these kinds of nutrients are having positive treatment effects, and we're going, working through this process to try and develop what our standard of care should be for critically ill patients. One of the other areas that I know you've written on in the literature, and I'd just love to hear your opinion, is this concept of post-pyloric feedings, because, you know, I've been at multiple institutions, and you can often get caught up a little bit in the local expertise of how this gets done, and I was wondering if you wanted to take a couple minutes and just share some of your thoughts on that, if you could. 
let me come at it from a different way in that my other area of interest is uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. And I think pneumonia is a bad thing. I think if you develop pneumonia in the ICU, on average, it will certainly prolong your critical illness and it may put you at higher risk for, for dying. So I'm very keen on doing things that minimize the risks for developing pneumonia. I acknowledge that enteral nutrition may, if applied badly, increase your risk for developing ventilator-associated pneumonia. So I'm very interested in strategies that minimize the risk of enteral nutrition and maximize its benefits. And post-pyloric feeding is one of those strategies that if, if, I, if it were easy to do, I would say everybody should be fed into the small bowel because any critically ill patient who lies flat on their back and has an alkaline formulation put into their stomach will regurgitate contaminated contents of their stomach into their oropharynx and may aspirate that and putting them at risk of pneumonia. So if we, if we could minimize that risk totally, it would be through putting the tube in the small bowel and putting the head of the bed up. Now, unfortunately, it's not an easy feat, and you must uh, critical uh, care practitioners will recognize the challenges in getting small bowel access. And so we've been exploring a number of different tubes that if placed blindly at the bedside, they may migrate spontaneously into the small bowel, and that's an active area of research in our group. And uh, we think in the next year we may have some findings that will, that will facilitate more of these tubes being used. Uh, but right now it remains a challenge for, uh, you know, a technical or feasibility challenge for us to achieve small bowel access. And so we tend to uh, utilize it only in patients who are at high risk for regurgitation aspiration, those kinds of patients who I cannot raise the head of their bed for some reason, or those kinds of patients who have documented problems with intolerance, uh, uh, namely persistent high gastric residuals or vomiting. Well, Dr. Highland, I've, I've tried to highlight uh, some important points that I thought you would be discussing at your uh, Congress keynote speech, but uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to conclude if you felt there were any other areas that you wanted to make sure to share with the members of SCCM about what kinds of things they would be learning if, if they uh, attended your, your session. The only other thing we didn't talk about, uh, Rich, was in this paradigm of pharmaconutrition where we're interested in evaluating the effect of individual nutrients on uh, homogeneous populations of critical illness is the whole concept of dose. How much do you give? How do we know that? What's it based upon? And rarely do we see these kinds of dose-finding studies done in the nutrition literature. Of course, it would be very common to be observed in you know the development of uh, pharmaceuticals or in testing drugs. We do different dose-ranging studies. And so that would be another significant point that I will be uh, making and illustrating uh, in my plenary talk is uh, dosing studies with these nutrients. We've got some really exciting data where we've uh, tried to figure out what the optimal dose of glutamine and antioxidants is by looking at its effect physiologically on mitochondrial function, the inflammatory response, markers of oxidative stress, and, of course, markers of organ function. In defining the optimal dose, then, we've been able to convince our Canadian Institutes of Health Research, our peer-reviewed granting council, to fund us to go on and test the safety and efficacy of that high dose of glutamine and antioxidants 
in 1,200 critically ill patients, and we'll be implementing that clinical trial in the new year. And so we're pretty excited about that line of research that has sort of really followed from the beginning the concept of pharmaconutrition, figuring out the optimal dose, testing individual nutrients in homogeneous populations of critical illness. Well, Dr. Highland, I know I've done these right. If I'm sitting here thinking that I've raised the the right controversial questions, and I'm excited myself about hearing the answers to some of these questions. So I really wanted to thank you for joining us today. We've had uh, with us on the podcast today Dr. Darren Highland. He is going to be giving one of the keynote speeches at the 2007 Congress, and the title of his talk will be Pharmaconutrition, a New Emerging Paradigm. Thank you so much again for being with us on the podcast today. You're very welcome, Rich. Thanks for asking me. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, September 20th, 2006. Visit www.sccm.org for more information on the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress and look for another special podcast series featuring interviews with speakers from the event. Thanks again for listening. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.